any kind of criminal prosecution that arises under the internal revenue laws has to be reviewed by the tax division. But I became a subject matter expert in however somebody was cheating. You're listening to Karen Finley, a federal prosecutor and former trial attorney with Department of Justice Tax Division. Welcome to the Fraud Fighter Podcast. Within how people cheat on their taxes, the ways are innumerable, all different kinds, income tax cases, corporate income tax cases, employment tax cases, obstruction against the Internal Revenue Service, conspiracy. If it has to do with taxes, it's coming through the tax division. In this episode, we discuss how the Department of Justice Tax Division assists in federal tax prosecutions, how employment tax fraud is conducted, when employment tax violations become a criminal matter, what the Department of Justice and federal courts consider for prosecution and sentencing purposes. She's a graduate from Brooklyn Law School. She spent 18 years at the Department of Justice Tax Division. She is currently an assistant United States attorney in Charlotte, North Carolina. Carolyn Finley, welcome to the Fraud Fighter Podcast. Thanks for having me. I understand that you are here as a guest of this podcast in your personal capacity, not as a government representative. Would that be correct? That's correct. So anything I say are my own views and not any official statement of the department. Why did you decide law as a career? So when I uh, was in college, I was a sociology major and I didn't really know what I wanted to do next. And so I was a pre-law. They had a pre-law program at my college at Brandeis University. And so felt like law was sort of the next good thing to go into. I I briefly contemplated studying like for a PhD in sociology and then felt like there was no chance I'd ever make any money. (laughs) And so uh, not that a career, a government career has, has made me rich, but then decided, you know, law school is the next thing to do. Felt like it was going to give me the most options uh, for someone that wasn't exactly sure what they would want to do with, with a law degree. Sooner or later, you joined the Department of Justice Tax Division. Why did you choose that route in law? It's actually, my dad is actually a defense attorney who specializes in tax. He has his LLM. And so in in sort of ironically, tax was probably the farthest thing from anything I ever thought I would go into. But I did want to go to D.C. when I was in college. I interned in D.C. for one summer and thought maybe I would want to move there. And so while I was in law school, between my second and third summer, I applied for the Department of Justice intern program. And at the time, I really wanted to go to the Civil Rights Division, but they only took four interns and the tax division took 20. And so... I sort of just funnily that that was why I chose the tax division because I played the numbers and I said, you know what, tax takes more people than any other division and I'm going to up my chances of getting an internship. (laughs) So that's how I wound up at the tax division. Uh, I spent my summer 
in D.C. between my second and third year of law school, where I split my summer between the civil side of the tax division and the criminal side. And at the end of the summer, I got an offer and I said, well, I have to be stupid not to take this job. And and that's how I wound up at the tax division. Tax division has two sections, a civil side and a criminal side. What is the difference between each side? The civil side, they also have a court of federal claims and both the criminal and civil have appellate sections as well. The civil side, the IRS is really the client. And so they represent the IRS in district court as well as I think tax court. Civil and criminal isn't a lot of overlap at the department between the two sections. Um, And then criminal, we have the criminal side of the department for tax has both a review and a prosecuting function. So any tax case that is brought anywhere in the country has to go through the tax division for um, a review before it can be prosecuted. In the United States, when there is a case that appears to have criminal elements to that, ultimately it goes through the Department of Justice tax division criminal side in order to review it and approve it. That's correct. So if a U.S. attorney's office wants to investigate someone using the grand jury and or there are recommendations for criminal tax charges, federal, they have to go through the tax division to get authorized. Why is DOJ tax important regarding tax fraud investigations? Taxes are complicated, and it's probably the one thing that I think unites most people in this country as far as just everybody has, um, you know, a voluntary obligation to pay your taxes. And so I think from a nationwide enforcement perspective, as well as uniformity, the tax division serves a really important function of making sure that a taxpayer in New York is treated the same way as a taxpayer in Colorado or or in Idaho, and that the kinds of cases that are being brought all over the country are somewhat uniform. Obviously, each area of the country has different um, priorities or different fact patterns. But this way, there's not you're not sort of at the whim of one party or one office or priorities, um, the tax division sort serves as a, as a gatekeeper for all of that. So what kind of tax fraud investigations does DOJ tax division review? Any kind of criminal prosecution that arises under the internal revenue laws has to be reviewed by the tax division. Obviously, if the charges are going to be brought under Title 26, which is the section of the um, criminal code where the tax fraud charges are found, then it's going to come through the tax division. Within how people cheat on their taxes is the ways are innumerable, um, and where we would have seen all different kinds uh, of cases, income tax cases, corporate income tax cases, employment tax cases. We could see cases of obstruction against the Internal Revenue Service, conspiracy. If it has to do with taxes, it's coming through the tax division. That's even including like gasoline tax, like the excise taxes that the government collects as well? 
There are some exceptions for certain excise taxes where the tax division does not have to review, but they're very, very limited. And so some excise taxes that still have to get reviewed by the tax division. So it's income, employment, and corporate income tax, that type of thing that you guys are reviewing, which I would think would, would cover most of the United States about you know the general day-to-day operations of a typical American. So what is the particular importance of employment tax fraud? Let's talk about that for a second. What exactly is employment tax fraud? So obviously, everybody in this country, if you are a W-2 wage earner in this country, your employer has a duty to withhold account for and pay over to the Internal Revenue Service your income tax and your FICA and Social Security. And in the United States, I think there's, I'm going to get the the stat or the percentage wrong, but it's something like upwards of 75% of all the taxes in our country are collected through withholding. Employment tax are really, really important. We, you know, if you're an employee, you rely on your employer you fill out your W-4 and you say, this is what I should be withheld. And then the employer is supposed to pay that over to the Internal Revenue Service uh, to fund all the wonderful things we have in this country. So it's the Social Security, Medicaid, or excuse me, Medicare tax, as well as the federal income tax that's hold out of people's paychecks. And then the employer has to match some of that. And that's all- correct. And then all of that has to be turned over to the United States government. That's correct. So they would report, generally speaking, quarterly on a Form 941. The employer would report to the Internal Revenue Service how much was uh, withheld, both from the, the FICA, their matching portion of the Social Security, and then the in- income tax they're withholding on behalf of the individual employee. And then they, depending on the size of their business, would be making weekly or biweekly or monthly payments over to the IRS to remit those taxes. So what happens with an employer who either does not collect the tax, like someone who pays his employees in cash, or they collect the tax from the employee's paychecks, but just don't turn it over to Internal Revenue Service? Sooner or later, the IRS in theory, would be sending a letter going, hey, you owe us the employees' taxes. Please pay over. Especially many small businesses, one of the first things they do is they don't pay their employees' taxes to the Internal Revenue Service because it's an easy way to kick in the can down the road. Hopefully, they'll pay the taxes later and later and later. At what point in time does this become a criminal matter? The area of employment tax, when you're talking about taxes, to me is an area that the civil easily become criminal very, very quickly. And the IRS does a really good job in the arena of employment taxes, kicking out notices and things. If if you're an employer that's sort of already on the radar, so you've, you've done the things you're supposed to do when you set up your company. And if you miss a payment or you miss a filing, the IRS has a lot of automated things in place that kick out letters. I think it's called the 930 letter. It'll kick out and say, hey, employer, you've, you've missed a payment that you're supposed to make. And by the way, here's, you know, these are your obligations. If you don't do it, you could get in trouble civilly or criminally. And every time you might miss a payment or a filing, these letters get kicked out. How something winds up turning criminal, there are a variety of factors that go into that. But 
obviously the IRS's job and purpose is to collect taxes. And so hopefully with these friendly touches from the IRS, it gets somebody back in compliance. If it doesn't, sometimes that means they would get audited or the trust fund recovery penalty would get assessed against the responsible person, the person or persons who would be responsible and required to account for and pay over those funds. In a criminal fact pattern, it doesn't necessarily fall into any one particular fact pattern. You could have a business that has never had issues civilly, but the owner of the company is withholding the money and then paying for all of their personal expenses with that money. So they're, you know, sending their kids to private school, they're going on vacations, they're buying jewelry, et cetera. That could be a criminal case. You could have a taxpayer business that has been in trouble before. So they've had that sort of friendly audit or that civil collection activity. And maybe they shut their business down in name only and created a new business and pretty much picked up and running right where they left off and then maybe start to accrue new quarterly liabilities. That might be a a great criminal case because that taxpayer has been on notice. They know what their obligations are and they're continuing their willful conduct. Sometimes it's the person's been assessed the trust fund recovery penalty and they're taking active steps to evade payment of that assessment by concealing their assets or taking affirmative steps to not allow the IRS to collect on that tax. So there's really a wide variety of fact patterns that could arise in uh, criminal employment tax prosecution. You talk about the trust fund recovery penalty. What is that? The IRS can assess the employment taxes against the company itself, and they can also assess that same tax against the individual or individuals who are deemed to be the responsible person. Under the Internal Revenue Code, there's a variety of factors that go into what makes somebody a responsible person. You don't necessarily have to be the owner of the company, but are you somebody who can decide who gets paid, when people get paid? Can you hire or fire employees? There are a number of factors that go into that determination. If the IRS determines that you are a responsible person, then they can make an assessment against you individually for the trust fund or the employment taxes. And the IRS can't collect twice. So if the, if the company winds up paying it, you, you as the individual would sort of get credit on your penalty, but they could also just decide to collect against you individually. So in a sense, what you're telling me is the IRS spreads its risk by going after the corporation and after the responsible parties in order to collect the money. That's correct. Okay. And then so later on when a business employee or business or somebody that's responsible sooner or later does not turn over those employment taxes, civilly they can be liable, but as criminally they could also be liable as well. That's correct. And the fact that somebody has previously been assessed the trust fund recovery penalty, you know, is a really important fact when you're talking about a criminal prosecution and you're talking about willfulness and, uh, you know, very heightened mens rea requirement where it's an intentional violation of a known legal duty, there's not much better evidence than having been previously assessed for the duty that you're now going to be prosecuted for. And 
Civilly, in, in the area of employment taxes, the work that the IRS does on the civil side from the revenue agents and the revenue officers, there are a lot of overlap in what they have to show in order to assess the trust fund recovery penalty that is almost virtually identical to what we have to show in a criminal case. And so there's a interview that the revenue officer does called the 4180 interview. And in many respects, this form that the revenue agent fills out by interviewing the individual is almost a template for my criminal case. It asks the questions about what duties and responsibilities that individual has with respect to the business. Do they know that the taxes are not being paid? What are the monies being spent for in lieu of the taxes? All of those things hit almost every single element of 7202, the, the criminal statute. So what kind of agency recommends these type of cases to you? Is it FBI, Secret Service, DEA, IRS? I mean, do they all have joint jurisdiction of this or just one agency? So it's just the IRS has the authority to investigate the tax crimes. And so they would be the referring and slash investigative agency. When it comes to employment tax investigations, going after the individuals who are just refusing to pay or for the most part, taking the money and spending it on themselves, that would be the IRS's jurisdiction solely. That would be. Now, oftentimes where employer is not paying over their employment taxes, they are oftentimes not complying with other responsibilities. And so the case may initially arise as some other type of fraud. So you often see companies that are really having these cash flow problems. So so not only are they not paying over the employment taxes, maybe they're not funding the 401k despite the fact that they're withholding that money from an employee's paycheck. Or I've seen fact patterns where the health insurance amounts are not being paid over and people think they have health insurance until they go to the doctor and find out they don't. Oftentimes those cases can originate with like the labor department or another agency. But if you want to bring criminal tax charges, then me as a prosecutor need to either invite the IRS in or, you know, it would have originated with them because they are the only ones that can bring those charges or refer those charges. How do you separate between somebody who's just struggling to the point where it's a criminal action in the situation? Uh, I mean, so do you look for particular fact patterns? Yeah, you know, it is a very fact-specific analysis. And obviously, because the IRS is typically the in, where these cases are originating, be it from a fraud referral from, from civil or perhaps employees um, report, report it to the IRS, oftentimes these businesses are not filing the W-2s with Social Security. And so somebody might get their Social Security statement at the end of the year and they've worked, but they're their little box that shows what their wages were for that year is empty because they they haven't the employer hasn't done all the reporting. You know, there are a, a wide variety of factors that go into what makes for the best type of criminal tax case in the employment tax arena. Those factors can be, as I said earlier, you know, is it somebody that's had repeated civil activity where they're permitting, they're shutting down 
one business that accrues an employment tax liability and opens up another one, and this is repeated and not not paying the taxes? Is it somebody that's been assessed the trust fund recovery penalty and then their willful failure to pay over is continuing? Or it could just be somebody that, you know, multiple quarters, they're not paying over and they're spending the money as if it's their own. And so there isn't one any one factor that makes it better per se than the other. We've had situations where we've prosecuted businesses who literally are just keeping open the front door, um, so to speak. They are using the funds to pay wages, to pay the light bill, to pay their vendors. But at the end of the day, as you alluded to earlier, you, you don't get to run your business off backs of the U.S. taxpayers because that money is literally not your money. It's the taxpayer's money in the United States is money. Is there a dollar limit that you guys look at? Is it, is it, I mean, I'm assuming that the statute for tax fraud does not have a dollar limit to it. No, it does. And I think that's one, another factor um, that plays into what cases get chosen, but there isn't um, a specific, you know, dollar sort of floor that, that we would be looking at. In different parts of the country have different thresholds. $250,000 in New York City may not be a lot, but that might be a lot in, you know, another part of the country. Right. So a, let's just make a state up. So a business in Montana might get a different look than a business in New York City from a dollar amount, just because in, in one state's a lot of money, in other states, it's not much at all, because there's like, there's bigger fish to fry in a, you know, maybe in New York City than it would be in Boise, Idaho, or something like that. That's true. But I think from a deterrent standpoint, it's important in, in any one state to bring a variety of cases, because if people think, oh, well, just my mom and pop businesses, I'm not going to get prosecuted. So I can continue with my conduct. That doesn't serve a lot of deterrent value if they only think, you know, big, large companies or, you know, people with high, you know, high labor costs are the ones getting prosecuted. How does DOJ tax support the criminal tax investigations? I know you said you did the review process, but does DOJ tax do anything else with this review things? DOJ tax is sort of like a one-stop shop for, for everything tax. Um, so in addition to the review function, they have a, a very strong litigating function. And so once a case is approved for prosecution, many times if it's a grand jury investigation, they'll already have been, you know, an AUSA, an assistant United States attorney on the case. If it was an administrative investigation that was conducted by the IRS without involvement of a U.S. attorney's office or DOJ tax, the, the case will get sent out to the U.S. attorney's office. And it's very much a you shall prosecute this person for what is authorized. Um, so the U.S. attorney's office almost has like a right of first refusal, as I like to call it. Many U.S. attorney's offices handle their own tax cases. And they have, you know, robust white collar units, or there's an AUSA that thinks tax is interesting and wants to do it. Many U.S. attorney's offices just don't have those resources. And so they will call on the tax division to come down and staff the tax cases. And a lot of the time, tax division and the U.S. attorney's office will work hand in hand together to prosecute the cases. In your capacity as a trial attorney with DOJ Tax Division, is there a particular tax case that you 
uh, reviewed or actually prosecuted that made a difference in your career or something that you're proud of? There's definitely, you know, I was at the tax division for 18 years. And I, I like to say that I, I stayed that long because I was continuously challenged and sort of intellectually stimulated in my career, both personal level, but professionally to sort of um, learn something new all the time. And um, I started right out of law school. I had no accounting background at all. I was quite frankly, not very good at math either. So um, <laughs> how, can you, how can you do taxes and not know a difference between a debit and a credit and income and expenses? Well, it's, it's very interesting that you say that. So I had a, a mentor who very early in my career, I was like, I, I literally did not understand debits and credits, but I'm, I'm supposed to, you know, be interviewing accountants and talking about taxes and tax returns. And he sat in a conference room with me at like 10 o'clock at night in Salt Lake City, Utah, which is where I did many cases early in my career. And with tuna fish cans, he taught me sort of bookkeeping and accounting, debits and credits. And I can distinctly remember when a lot of that really clicked for me. I was I was interviewing an accountant and he was giving me some responses. And I in my head I said, well that doesn't make sense because that's not like debits and credits. And I had sort of that light bulb moment where I was like, I think I've got it. <laughs> and I could actually ask an intelligent sort of rebuttal question back to him that's like, no, that's that's not it. So I think from very simple things like that to, you know, I've, I had had the pleasure to do a lot of different kinds of cases at the tax division where I was, you know, I've, I had several trials, um, but I had one of the UBS client offshore case that had a lot of challenges and learned a lot from that case. But I think every every case sort of brought with it some new opportunity to learn something new. And I, I like to say I was never a tax attorney, but I became a subject matter expert in however somebody was cheating. And if I could not sort of boil down something that on its face looked very complicated to something very, very simple, then I knew I wasn't going to be able to explain it to a jury. And that was most of the fun, the challenge of the job. What are the considerations that are taken into when it comes to sentencing? So you do a tax case, they're found guilty or plea guilty, and you have to bring all this evidence in front of a judge. What things are you as a prosecutor bringing in front of the judge to give them an accurate reflection of what the sentence should be like? What are some things that you would bring in front of a judge? For me as a prosecutor, I'm always thinking about sentencing, even from almost like the beginning of the case, because there are many things that may not be admissible in a trial or really relevant to sort of getting a case pled out, but maybe really relevant or persuasive when it came time for sentencing. Like what? So... For example, if you're talking about just an unreported income case, you have to show all of these specific items of unreported income and you have you have to show that this is income to that individual and you can't just say, well, they wrote a check, therefore it's income. You know, you have to bring in the mortgage company and sort of corroboration and and at sentencing the rules of evidence are not as high. You don't you don't have to worry about hearsay and other things. And so there may be certain items of income that may not have been something I would charge, 
or maybe it's not a lot of money, but it's something that just makes it look as greedy as you know the defendant might have been. So something something silly and small, but that really speaks volumes about how lengths that the individual defendant sort of went to to commit their crime. And and then there's things too like lies. I mean, it's always important to show lying, cheating, stealing. Again, you maybe you had an evidentiary issue that you couldn't presented at a trial because you didn't have a witness. But if the agent found it and can show it, well, maybe the agent can testify at the sentencing to put that out before the court. Trying for sentencing, very few tax cases get prosecuted to sort of, you know, percentage wise. And so making sure that you are fully advocating for the case at sentencing, your 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 advocacy doesn't end just when you have a guilty plea or the conviction. And so drafting and filing sentencing memos, pointing out the deterrence and the value of a, a term of imprisonment for these kinds of cases is really important. And that's where the prosecutor you get to really, really advocate. Uh, so sentencing to me oftentimes is the most the most fun part. Under the sentencing guidelines, there are a number of ways that you sort of get to what the term of imprisonment is, and it starts with your tax loss. Obviously, my goal at sentencing is to get my tax loss up as high as as I can. Once that I got that number, there are a number of factors that add to what the overall sentence is. So was my defendant a leader organizer? Is this a conspiracy where there are more than two or three people involved? Did um, the facts of the case involve sophisticated means? Were there nominee entities or nominee bank accounts or offshore assets and offshore concealment? That gets two additional points. Did they earn more than $10,000 from illegal activity, depending on what the fact pattern of the case? That's another two points. Were they a return preparer? Uh, So then you would get two points for being in the business of return preparation. Uh, was there obstruction? Did they provide false documents to the special agent or did they cause others, witnesses to present false information, say, to the grand jury or during an audit? You might have an obstruction enhancement. And so you are really marshalling all of the facts of your case and seeing how those things fit into what the guidelines call for. Was there an abusive position of trust in the case? Were they a professional? And so all of those things, do they have a criminal history? Uh, Had they been in trouble before with the IRS? Um, You want to be able to to put your best foot forward on all of those factors because then the court comes to an advisory guidelines calculation and then the court can basically do whatever it wants after that. Then you're going to talk about things like the history and characteristics of the defendant, the um, seriousness of the offense, specific and general deterrence. And that's where you get to really advocate, just like the defense attorney is going to advocate about how, you know, the person has never been to jail before. This is a one-off. They have a family. They have a business. If you send my person to jail, then he's going to have 10 employees that no longer have a job or his child's going to have to drop out of college. And so you want to then be able to marshal all the facts on your side of the case to rebut that. Looking back on your career, what was the biggest mistake or lost opportunity you have as a federal prosecutor? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, 
I think I'm very hard on myself that I can often let people sort of get under my skin. And um, I think I've had many lost opportunities where um, I did not sort of put up that that guard and would let people, defense attorneys particularly, get to me. Um, and that I could have um, handled some of that a little bit, a little bit better. Um, I I really do feel extremely blessed in my career that um, I had really wonderful mentors and supervisors and bosses who allowed my career to flourish and put me in um, a really great, safe place to learn. I had really amazing agents that I worked with, especially when I was a new agent who were not scared to tell me how to do my job. And that really helped make me the prosecutor I was. We all have to learn somehow, some way. No one's ever born knowing this stuff. <laughs> no, I definitely early on, I can, I had a, a case in Reno, Nevada and special agent was new and we had a sort of not, he wasn't crusty, but I want to call him like an old crusty SEP cooperating revenue agent. We had this case and I fortunately, unfortunately didn't really have co-counsel and I was pretty brand new. And I was like, you need to tell me what, what I need to know how to do this case. And he really did. And you know, I really appreciated that he did that. You have to put your ego aside and, and say, you know, you only know what you don't know. So being able to hear from people that have done it a lot longer can really be important. Federal prosecutions is a team effort. The attorney needs the agent. The agent needs the attorney. It's a symbiotic, mutual relationship to where you have to have honest, open conversations going, hey, you didn't do well here. Or maybe think about this. We're in it to represent the United States, not just for our own pride. Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree. Again, I, I was very, very lucky in my early in my career to have a lot of special agents who were very experienced and more toward the end of their career. And I can remember one where I was brand new and in Boise, Idaho, you, you talked about Idaho early. That's one of the first places I went and did cases. And I had a special agent that we were going to do a trash run. And I was like, I want to go along. And he's like, you, and we, I got to sit in the car when he did the trash run and we got the the trash out of the garbage from the So garbage you're there van. at two o'clock in the morning when the when the lights are out and everybody's in bed, uh taking trash? Luckily it wasn't two o'clock in the morning, but I was there, I was sitting, I, I was like, I want to see how this is really done. And he got the trash bag and I was like, great. I I was like, let's put on some gloves. I'm ready. And he, you know, he was, he was sort of like an older guy. And, I, you know, I was a young 25-year-old girl, right? He's like, you are not putting gloves on and going through the garbage. I was like, no, I, I'm going through the garbage. I watched. But, you know, we, we found some really great evidence in the trash. And I think that, like you said, the team effort, I think my showing that I'm willing to sort of literally get dirty with the special agent goes a long way to achieving a, a really good end result. You ready for the final four questions? I'm ready. Yes. Don't ask me what book changed my life because I don't think I have one. You got so. to figure out something. <laughs> All right. I have no time for reading. What is your biggest motivation now? Uh, you know, my biggest motivation, I think, was when I left the tax division, I was feeling a little stale in my career generally, just because I felt like I had 
done what I needed to do with tax. And so it was a big leap for me to leave someplace that I was like the only place I knew my whole career. And so the biggest motivation for me now and has been is to just really learn new things and to be a prosecutor. And I've been really enjoying that to to sort of learn a whole set of new statutes and new investigative techniques and and work with new people. And then obviously my family, um, my other motivation for sort of leaving DC was to be able to not be traveling so much and be on the road uh, and have a little bit more stability in my work-life balance. And uh, that's what Charlotte has really offered me is is a really awesome combination of both of those things. Are you doing a lot of guns and drugs? I am not. Everybody has a gun case in our office, which I think is really awesome. Because In my other life, I think I really should have been a special agent. So fascinating. So it's nice occasionally to have different kinds of tangible evidence than just bank statements and paper, <laughs> uh, body cam video and, and physical guns and things is, is interesting. So I, I definitely have felt re-energized in my career to have a much larger variety of cases. But at the same time, tax background and the financial investigative prosecution background I have really is invaluable in any kind of case that, that you can do. What book or books have changed your life or thinking? Something that you've read that, you know, what's an aha moment that you think is worthy of sharing? Tuesdays with Maury. So I went to Brandeis and Maury Schwartz was a sociology professor there. And when I was in college, he was sick. I was able to hear him speak in person. Uh, He was not teaching anymore at the time, but he would still be at the university. And so for me, when I read Mitch Albom's book after it, it just brought back a lot of the things that I think Brandeis instilled in me, made me feel committed to public service and Um, why I've stayed at the department for my whole career. Share something that you've purchased in the last 12 months, less than $100 now, that's made your life easier or something that you enjoyed. If it's good enough for Karen, it should be good enough for the rest of the world. Well, (laughs) I think in this time of working from home and the pandemic, I you cannot underestimate a really good office chair as well as dual monitors. I have to shout out to my husband who's an IT professional because he set me up with the dual monitors at home. And when you're looking at documents, two monitors, you can't do without it. Wait till you go to three monitors. I set up (laughs) for COVID. I did three monitors. I'm telling you, you wouldn't go back to two monitors it's now to the point where you have to move your head in order to actually go from one monitor to another. But it's great. It's absolutely great. I need a standing desk at home now, though I use my kitchen has sort of like a bar ledge to it that is just the right height. So I, I sort of alternate between the kitchen table and the ledge, but I can't have my dual monitors on the ledge. So Yeah, that wouldn't be good. <laughs> <laughs> Try tell your husband to get you three monitors. Three <laughs> monitors. Tell me, he that's would the bomb. Me up with them if I if I if I asked. So, if you had to do something else, if you got fired today, what would you be doing? Do I have to be qualified to do it, or just what would I? What would you be try in my to next do? life? What would you? If you had um, to do something you know, else, honestly, different? if I if I like won the lottery and couldn't do this job, I actually think I would go work for the Innocence Project, which I I think probably sounds odd coming from a prosecutor. But I I think 
as most prosecutors take their job so seriously. And we have such a high duty to do justice. It's not about winning. It's about doing justice. And sometimes that means people don't get prosecuted. I would maybe go work for the Innocence Project. Or I'd become, I'd like to be a doctor, but I'm, again, rounding out the conversation. I'm really not good at math. <laughs> or was not very good at science, but I think it would be cool to be a doctor. <laughs> I had an attorney tell me one time, it's better to let the guilty go than to have the innocent be prosecuted. Yes. And it's interesting. My daughter asks me those questions. You know, what happens if you think someone's innocent? And, you know, it's like, well, then I don't prosecute them. My job is to do justice and do our best to put it together. And if we can't make our showing, then it's our duty to not bring that case, even if we think somebody's done it. All right, Karen. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I do appreciate it. Thanks. That was a lot of fun. I enjoyed it. Good luck in your career as a federal prosecutor in Charlotte. Thank you. Thank you so much for being on